the name of the Father and Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, particularly in Mass, um, for your life itself that we carry within us from the Eucharist. Help us to find in it um, a greater love, a greater courage to do those things that are not easy, a greater um, light, um, all of you, um, so that we can become more one with you in everything that we do. Um, I ask a blessing on Connie, Stephanie and Brian, Kathy's daughter, she, she will go into surgery shortly, Lynn Conklin, John, Carolyn. Um, I ask a special blessing on our oldest son, Thomas and his wife. Um, we had a talk with them. Um, no great problem, but it was a serious talk today and um, I, um, I hope I hope they find in it a strength. Um, um, for a daughter, Ames, um, for Hudak, um, Connie and um, Jay, and his wife's name, I don't Susan. Susan, Jay and Susan, and watch over them. Um, there are um, a number of people who have been diagnosed with cancer, who um, apparently don't have much time to live. Um, we are grateful for um, any of the ways in which you touched Karen, hit, Daniel, Daniel um, strengthen him in his efforts. Let him um, know in some personal way your care for him so that whatever brought him to church will be strengthened in the upcoming months. Um, help us um, all to be with you. Um, the words Father asked us to keep saying, and I'm um, asking everybody if you would do them yourself. Here we are, Lord. We've come to do your will. Strengthen us in our efforts to do that. Um, help us take seriously what we're reading to give ourselves. Um, literature can be compelling. Um, it, it, in some ways, it's much easier to hear something from a book than from a husband, a wife, or a father, or a child. Um, help us to take seriously what we're reading, even if it's uncomfortable, um, to help us change, um, not be afraid, trust in you. Um, in all that we do, um, let your blessing be with us. We are glad to have this time together for the work, um, for the cake, the wine, um, all the goodness is, um, that is here. Um, let our hearts be good and glad in all that we do this night. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Okay, we've got a ton to do. Let's um, start with um, Joan's very poems. I'd like to read um, two, the, actually they're the two darkest ones. And again, I'd like to ask all of you if you just take these home and read them, please, please. Um, um, I said to Suzanne last night when I was thinking about doing Joan's very um, 
what a gift to you guys um, for this reason. Jones Very was a contemporary of Melville's. Um, he was part of that um, transcendentalist group. For those of you who don't know your American history, the transcendentalists were, um, was, was a group of um, very bright men who came together, I think, around this crisis that the, um, the Protestant um, seaboard is in collapse, that culture, that New England seaboard culture is in collapse. But it produced in that moment of fervor, whatever you want to call it, that heat when a tradition is passing and, and people can't be left in despair, they go on to do something else, that out of that collapse came these really bright men and what they did, the transcendentalists, Thoreau, Emerson. Um, most of you have heard of those people and, and may have read their works. Walden Pond is famous, um, throws Walden Pond in, um, and Emerson's Nature. And more importantly, probably Emerson's essay called Self-Reliance, which is a hallmark in, in secular studies today. You can't go to a state university and read the 19th century and not read that essay. Um, um, it troubles me, and to me it points to what I, what I think is one of the great faults of the American character, but, but it came out of this heated, feverish time um, that, um, that produced all these modern intellectuals on, on the verge of the secular world. Jones Very belonged to that group, the transcendentalists. Everybody recognized how bright he was. He's a really bright man, or he wouldn't have been in that circle. But he was very different from everybody. Jones Very was a part of that group, but he was uncomfortable with Emerson and Thoreau because he saw them moving away from what he would have known as the spirit. He was a Quaker. He belonged to the community of Friends, if you know that, the Quaker um, um, group. He belonged to that, and he thought of himself as a friend, and he was very much given to the, what you might call the quietism of the Friends, the, the Quakers, and believed very much that, um, that you, you could not do anything um, f freely without the work of the Spirit that everything that he did, he, he took seriously because he saw it as being one with the Spirit. Emerson scoffed at that. And Emerson would say when they had their meaning, so when you put your elbow up in the fireplace mantle, is the Spirit doing that with you? It was his way of mocking him to say, it's such a stupid thing to, you know, that you don't do anything that isn't guided by him. So for you guys to, I was just thinking the other night when I was thinking about doing this, put this together with Melville. And, and you have a real sense of what's going on in the 19th century. The, 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 those are the divisions that a, that a Christian world is, seems to be in collapse. And you've got these extraordinary people struggling either to keep alive or to make sense out of it, which is what Emerson and Thoreau did. Um, if you haven't heard of the um, self-sufficient, that essay of Emerson's called, I think it's called self-sufficiency. It's that essay in which he encourages everybody to follow their own beat, to thine own self be true, you know. I think it's a frightening, sub there was a critic who I who admire called Emerson the right hand of the devil, and I think he was doing it with that in mind. Because what's, what it's really doing is encouraging everybody to be self-sufficient, as if you didn't need God, which is, which is one of the dominant characteristics of our culture. If you're self-sufficient, follow your own beat, you have no reason for listening for God. Your own powers are sufficient in themselves. So, 
So you can see what's happening here um, with Melville and with a poet like Jonesbury. Okay, so let me read these two poems. Um, in The Lost, um, you'll see that he's very much aware that most of the people on earth live in a dichotomy separated from things. It's a, it's a form of dualism, after, particularly after Descartes, but, but we've talked about this an awful lot, that as human beings in our intellects, we tend to look at others as objects. We tend to objectify people. We don't love them. We know them as abstractions. And Jonesbury is aware of that, and it, it makes him aware of what people are losing standing that way in the world. So the poem is very much about the lost, the people who stand that way, and he sets it against his awareness of what will happen one day when they're with the Spirit, because when they're with the Spirit, they will be united with everything around them. I mean, imagine, there's, none of us will be in heaven in that way. In heaven, we saw this in Dante's Paradiso. Remember, in, in, in the Commedia, in the Paradiso, Dante shows us, remember, in being, in othering, in ewing, all the reflexive verbs. It was his way of showing that while each person is an individual, he's also becoming one with another. So every time a person enters heaven, heaven gets larger and richer. Right? Because everybody contains everybody else. It's a little bit like Buddhism, except in Buddhism, you lose yourself. There's no self. The Buddhists believe that the self is evil. Anything individual is bad. We believe that God made each one of us with an individual soul. There's an integrity, an image of the unity in each one of us. But we were meant to be together, to be in union. And we've been reading poems to that effect. So here, Varys um, um, describing a condition in which um, people stand apart from each other, but with this sense that, that it's possible for them to be one with these things, with the bird singing, with the daylight, with a flower. So he makes the point, one day you will be the day. One day you will be the flower. Um, one day you will be the bird singing. That sense of unity will be there where, where you're a part of that song and that harmony. So, and then the other poem is, is also um, a, a little bit dark. So um, um, take these home. Please read the other two. Read them just... And remember, read them aloud. Don't read them silently. If you can read them to somebody else, it would be great. <coughs> Jonesbury, The Lost. The fairest day that ever yet has shone will be when thou the day within shall see. The fairest rose that ever yet has blown when thou the flower thou lookest on shall be. But thou art far away among time's toys, thyself the day thou lookest for in them, thyself the flower that now thine eye enjoys. But wilted now thou hangest upon thy stem, the bird thou hearest on the budding tree thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice. But when it swells again to melody, the song is thine in which thou wilt rejoice. And thou new risen midst these wonders live, but now to them does all thy substance give. The people he's addressing this to are giving their substance to time's toys, playthings. They're so preoccupied with time's toys, these things of the world, in the wrong way, 
that they don't know this experience of union. And, and I hope you all, just with your general knowledge, you'll recognize how close this is to what we call mystical knowledge, union with God, union with things, that the dichotomy, that the tendency to objectify, to put us in separate worlds, is overcome for a moment. Um, um, thou art far away among time's toys, and thou new wizards make these wonders give, that now to them thou dost give, all, that all thy substance give. We give our too much to these things, and they keep us from being one with us. The dead. I see them, crowd on crowd, they walk the earth, dry leafless trees, no autumn wind laid bare, and in their nakedness find cause for mirth, and all unclad would winter's rudeness dare. No sap doth through their chattering branches flow, when springing leaves and blossoms bright appear, their hearts the living God have ceased to know. Who gives the springtime to the expectant year? They mimic life, as if from him to steal his glow of health to paint a livid cheek. They borrow words for thoughts they cannot feel, that with a seeming heart their tongue may speak, and in their show of life more dead they live than those that to the earth with many tears they give. You know, I read this and I can't read it without thinking of the um, Walking Dead. But it's really interesting. I mean, give this a thought. It's hard for me to read this poem without thinking about the Walking Dead and what we do with that image on TV. They've got, I, every once in a while when we're looking through channels, I'll pass that. And I, it's so clear that that has a large following, that, um, that the Walking Dead. I never miss one. Hmm? Yeah. I never miss one. Yeah, that it has a large following. But think about the difference. Think about the difference between that presentation and this. Because there is some gentleness here, while it, while it acknowledges that condition, that, I mean, I don't watch the series, but what I, what I have seen in just you know, brief minutes of it is, is that it's, um, it's stark and um, um, gory and violent and, and I mean it, it, it's about the walking dead on and, and, and the earth it's a very modern condition but anyway the contrast between his awareness of that condition the walking dead and what we'll get in a modern world because the modern world has become darker and darker and darker and darker um, so Jones Ferry for those of you who have no wine there's two bottles over there. Okay, just a quick review. Last week, I, I, as I said, you, you recall, I felt a little bit awkward because for the first time in I, our time together, I really had to step out as a catechist explicitly. And you know that um, as important as catechism is to me, that I've tried to do everything I could to stay focused on the works, believing that there was such a value there for us, um, a source of strength for our faith, that if I did it well, we would all be strengthened. And it would be easy enough for me to, to come out of the works, to, to make connections with our faith that weren't always obvious. But the focus has always been these works. Um, last week I, I, I took a different approach 
because for the first time in all the works that we've done, even with Dante in some ways, for the first time we have a major writer who's critiquing Christianity in a way that speaks directly to us. Because the, the whole book in some ways is an indictment of Christianity. It's an attempt to go to the metaphysical roots of a modern problem. And that's why it's so important for us today to look at it. But I wanted to do a couple of things. I wanted to try to set the Ishmael story in its context. Remember, Ishmael um, is the founder of the Islamic line. And it's important to remember that he's given the special place he is by God. And I don't want to forget that. He says, um, um, Ishmael will be a wild ass of a man, his hand against every man, every man's hand against him. He will establish a great nation. Now, we, don't, we, we have no sense from scripture of how Muhammad fits into that. We've just got the Islam story, I mean the Ishmael story. So we know that he's the founder of that line because Muhammad um, gives authority to his vision by linking himself with him. He belongs to that line. Now what Melville's doing with that is an important question for us. We know that he's not Islamic. He's Christian, he's a Presbyterian. Those of you who've done the research know. Um, <laughs> Um, bless that soul, dearest Marcy. <laughs> but it's not St. Thomas, it's, it's somebody. Um, so um, we know that he's Presbyterian. He's a, and we also know that in some sense he seems to renounce his faith. I'll, I'll get to that chapter in a, in a few minutes. So we have, we have to wrestle with that question in this book. The other thing that I wanted to do is since this is an indictment of Christianity, I wanted to see if I if I could set out our faith and set it against the Protestant world. Because in one sense, this is clearly directed at the Protestant world, not at Catholicism. And yet it seems to me it's really important for us to see ourselves as a part of that world. But I wanted to set out differences so that we could see some of the fundamental differences between the Catholic faith and the Protestant. And I want to just take a minute to review that. Um, um, because I, I want you to keep it in my mind or on our minds. And remember, this is not a way for me to hold our Catholic faith outside that critique. That's not what I'm intending. I just want everybody to be clear on what some of the fundamental differences are between the Catholic faith and the Protestant world, so that when we look at this, we're aware of those. Where, where Melville was on this question to me is hard to get at. Um, he, he, he's very rarely explicit, and I've told you before, there are times when he uses popish in a way that was not uncommon in the 19th century, but there are times when he refers to things Catholic in a very um, laudatory, praiseworthy way. So we're just going to have to work through, but I wanted to set those out. Um, I think most of you know that in the 19th century, because we're in a Protestant world, there was a strong anti-Catholic bias in America generally. The Catholic's always been an outsider. We're the outcast, in a sense. If you look at the Catholic literature, I've not read it, but I know about it. If you look at the, or if you look at the anti-Catholic literature in the 19th century, you've got all these novels being written about these horrible things that take place behind convent walls, that, that nuns are raped and seduced and carry on with all these lascivious activities and these sexual things, that this is the Antichrist, and 
So it was really, it's really clear what the Protestant world thought of the Catholic world if you look at the literature of the time. The poetry, the novels, um, girls in school dresses who are um, being seduced and carry on seductions behind cloistered you know, walls. And Melvin doesn't touch that. That's not his point. He, he's critiquing America. And, and particularly, it's, um, it's, it's Christian theology and it's um, dying out in this time. So I didn't want to put the Catholic world outside of that. I just wanted you to be aware of it. I think I was pretty clear. It seems to me it's really important for us to see ourselves as a part of that world. He, it, it's important that we ask ourselves, if this is an indictment, where are we in it? Do, do we fall into this ourselves? We should take this seriously. A couple of things that I wanted to, um, to focus, and I'll just quickly go over these, um, because it goes to this question of art that has been so important in all the work that we did together. Um, this is a Christian world. As Melville presents it, um, I'm, I want to look at this very closely because I'm going to look at all these characters so we can get very clear on, on what's going on in this culture that, he, that he's showing us. Um, but I wanted to make a couple of things clear. One of the things, remember I said, one of the things that distinguishes the Catholic faith from the Protestant world <coughs> is the tendency of the Protestant world to privatize things, to make the I, the individual, an arbiter of his own world. That's one of the effects of the, of the breakup after the Reformation. Um, it's, it's one of the ways in which the American character finds its strength because it finds a strength in a religious belief. Um, the, the individual, the private individual, is the arbiter of his world. He doesn't turn to other things. People who look at Catholics tend to look at them and think they're blindly following a pope. They don't have their own minds. They're not free. They're not independent. Um, so what we find in this world are people everywhere who are isolated. It's, it's a major theme of the work. Melville calls them, Ishmael calls them, isolados. We'll, we'll see that in a minute. In the Catholic Church, we have something different. And it's really important to remember this. Um, before Christ came, there was already a tradition in place that he radically changed. He, he carried it forward, but changed it. He didn't deny it or refuse it. He, he fulfilled it. He came to fulfill the law. After Christ, there was already a tradition in place again, because the people had already begun to practice the sacraments before the writings took place. It's really important to keep this in mind. We only know of Christ through these writings. When Christ was here, everybody experienced him directly. They didn't need any writings. After he died, how was he going to be kept alive? Christ sent everybody out to, to propagate the faith. Yeah? Because he's gone. So we only know of Christ through others. So two things really important. One is a tradition preceded him. It followed him before the writings. That tradition was in place. It was already going on. Or the writings wouldn't have been done. And the writings themselves are an expression of a tradition. They're an embodiment of it. They're carrying it forward. We've got three different... The, the, um, what do you call these? The, synoptic. synoptic Gospels, because they're all very similar, and then John. So we've got multiple perspectives on what we 
believe, and his, history confirms, was an actual real event. And that's crucial, because if we set that against Islam, we've got a religion coming out of a private revelation. Nobody was there to validate it. Yeah? It's private. We have no way of knowing or not. The Catholic Church frowns on that. When, he, when it hears about re religious revelations, when people have them, it does everything and it can to test those things out. Because pe the Church knows the dangers that all of us faith, face by trying to make a private experience more than it is. Because there's a danger to all of us. This danger of misreading that I've been pushing. So we only know Christ through others. And he created the church to leave the church in its place to propagate the faith, to, to take him to people, to transform the world. Um, I just had a thought, I'm missing it. He created the church. It just left me. Um, we only know of him through others. Oh. He commissioned the Spirit. The Spirit wasn't sent by the Father. The Spirit was sent by Christ. It's the Spirit of Christ. I mean, we believe the Spirit is the love between the Father. But Christ on earth made it clear to his disciples and to the world he was sending the Spirit to continue that work. And I read that passage last week about the, remember the, the Spirit? The only unforgivable sin was the blasphemy, and I tried to offer an explanation on that last week. The crucial thing to keep in mind here, Christ commissioned the Spirit. He said, I send you the paraclete to continue his work in the church. So that gives the church, I give the, piece to, to the keys to Peter, what you loose, what you bind. I mean, that's an extraordinary authority he's giving the church. Why? Because it's a divine power, it's an extraordinary thing. The Spirit is here working with the church. And it's, it's really important to keep this in mind. If you look at all the heresies that, be, that grew out of the first several centuries, you've got very, very, very bright men who are giving interpretations of Christ that are all wrong. So we know the dangers of people who have bright intellects, that they're so capable of doing things that might be in error. So the, the magisterium of the church is not an insignificant thing. It's an assurance that the Spirit is working in time, carrying on the work of Christ. So everything about the Catholic religion is communal. It, carried, it is itself a tradition being carried forward. We, we don't get Christ directly. We get him through other people. We can't just go back to him. We only know of him because of Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. And the first theologians, if you put the books of the, they are the first ones who interpret Christ in a way that makes clear what his nature was when everybody else is getting him wrong. So we, we, we're at the very beginning, we become aware it's so easy to misread, to misinterpret, to make things the way we want them to be when they're not that way. So this whole thing about reading, how, how important it is that we read well, that goes right to the book. How good a reader is Ahab? In the very beginning, I'll, I'll come to this. How good a reader is Ishmael? There are signs all around him. Does he see them? He doesn't. He doesn't. It's been one of the great themes from the beginning, if we go back to the Iliad, how well do men read? 
They're poor readers. If we didn't have men like St. Thomas, we would be in serious trouble. The easiest thing would be to want to go off and make the world the way we want to make it because we think we're smart. That's what all the, that's what all the heresies were. If you look at um, Arius, the Arian heresy, which was one of the major ones at the time, or Sibelius, those are the two of the major. Those men are bright men, extremely bright. Could our church have answered it without the help of the Holy Spirit? So the church isn't just a fixed thing. It's the Holy Spirit moving forward in time, carrying on the work of Christ, adapting to the circumstances. That's why one of the reasons I wanted to do this course is to see the Spirit was already at work before Christ came. If we're taking the early epics seriously. God's always been here. And he's been here ever since. If you look at the difference between um, Dante's The Divine Comedy and Melville's Moby Dick, you see a real change. I mean, Melville's writing out of a Protestant world. He's not Dante. But I believe, I mean, this, I'll, I hope this becomes clear as we go along, that what he's doing is correcting a world that's gone wrong in lots of ways. Um, so it's really important to keep in mind fundamental differences between our faith. And I, I want to repeat this again. I'm not offering this as a way of exempting us from this critique. I don't want to do that. Because I believe we're all convicted. That, that this book is about us and our failures. I just want to be clear that, that there is a difference between, <clears throat> fundamental differences between the Catholic faith, Protestantism, and Islam. And it's important to have some sense of those. And I'm not a catechist and I'm not a theologian, but I think, I think what I'm saying is fairly orthodox. I wouldn't say it otherwise. Um, so let me stop, let me stop there. That's, that's just a quick review. Um, of some of the more important things we I touched on last week, um, I, I want to I want to, and I talked about the things that Christ asked of us. You know that that we have to keep in mind. One of the things that really bears here, I, I can't forget this. Remember, Christ came to offer atonement. He came to offer Himself in atonement for a sin because we couldn't do it ourselves. If a God didn't do it, we would be damned because our offense was against God. So right at the center, there's this extraordinary mystery that we can't overlook. Christ is not just a prophet or a, um, a nice God. He went to a cross uh, for us. He asks us to repent. He asks us to love each other as he did, to pick up his cross and follow him. And, and this seems to me to go to the heart of what I take to be one of Melville's most serious critiques of Christianity. Because it seems to me the whole Christian world, Catholic and Protestant, has to look on whether or not it's pick up its cross. Paul said of the Jews, the, the veil has fallen over the Jews. Um, Maritan has said, and I believe he's right, the veil has fallen over modern Christianity. How many of us pick up our cross the way Christ did? That's a serious critique. So, And one of the reasons I'm, I'm mentioning it now is because when we look at Ahab the first time he's described, you'll see, a, you'll see the, he'll describe it as a mark of a crucifixion on Ahab. It's the way he describes him. But it's an incomplete crucifixion. How many people actually take their sufferings to the cross? Join Christ there. That's a hard thing for us. Um, he asked us to pick up our cross. 
he told us categorically, um, it was an imperative that we take his blood and eat his body. The, the words of that are, they're, they're not just follow me, he says, unless you eat of my... So he's really clear that the Eucharist is a condition of our moving forward. Um, will, we, will we get better if we don't take him into us? So that he becomes a part, taste and see. The Protestant world tends to live in its head. They don't believe in the real presence for the most part. So that's absent. So the whole sacramental life that we know, take for granted, is not a part of the Protestant world. In one sense, you can say that the Protestant world carries forward the, the Judaic, um, you call them the, uh, the rabbi, the rabbinical tradition. Being in the temple, reading from the books, interpreting things. Yeah? You go to a Protestant ministry church service on Sunday, and it's a Protestant reading the Bible, interpreting it. They're in their heads. They make everything a matter of their intellect, understanding something. We're asked to taste and see, eat him, drink him. It can be easy to look at us as cannibals. You know, um, that's a very different experience. So he wanted us to carry to propagate. The church was created in order to carry him forward and continue his work. Um, the tradition is a part of it. You can't separate the tradition from the church. We get Christ through them. Um, and what was the other thing? Um, oh, and the Holy Spirit is carrying on this work. Um, so if the church, and think about this, how Christianity tends to fragment around itself. Christ can't be fragmented, he's, he can't, he's whole. So the presence of the Holy Spirit, the magisterium, is to protect the church's unity, to not let it fragment the way so much of the Protestant world does, where people get ideas and they follow Christ in different ways, and you get this fragmented world. Um, so, so it's important to, to think about these things. I'm saying them here because I don't want to just collapse all this and confuse it. I think it's important to keep this distinction in mind. Um, but remember what I said, I'm saying this not to exempt us from this critique. I think if we don't read this and ask ourselves, where are we, um, how, much of, how, are, how much of this is convicting us, then I think we're misreading it. You know, um, I'm sure this is true for you. I know that Suzanne and I come out of um, masses sometimes with Father's homily, and we feel convicted. When you hear the Bible speaking to you, and you you think about yourself and say, "There I am," you know, and you go home and <laughs> humbled. And um, so, I think it's really important when we read this book that we not put ourselves outside of it, because if we do, I think we're going to miss something. So, that was what I was attempting to do last time. Tonight, um, let's see, should I, if you're okay, do you want to take a minute for questions? Because this is sort of catechetic, catech it doesn't bear directly on the book, so I'm a little bit nervous about, but if, if, if there's something that seems unorthodox in what I'm saying, I'd be glad to take a question and try to straighten it out, but I'm trying to be pretty orthodox here. I, I, do, I don't think I'm saying anything that's 
heretical, I hope not. I, I don't see Ishmael being for Catholic faith. He didn't like Lent. There's certain things in it that he says, and mm -hmm. he sounds like he's mm -hmm. very prejudiced towards it. Yeah. So I don't know if I agree with you that he was... You kind of said he was in favor of Catholics. Sorry? Did you say that? No. 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 Oh, okay. Sorry? Say Mary, what? No, I was just telling Jane it was the opposite. She had misunderstood you. Say what you were saying. What did, mean? What did you hear me saying? I, I thought I heard you say that he was kind of easy on Catholics. He doesn't really talk about them. Melville occasionally will use words that well, relate to Well, Melville wrote. He developed a character, so that's Melville. Yeah, but I... Yeah, but... Yes, but I hope, I hope you all know that authors can create characters that aren't just mouthpieces for them. That's I mean, think about Shakespeare and all the characters that he created. Really great artists, really great artists, when they're creating fictional works or drama, um, it seems to me one of the greatest dangers they face is creating characters that are spokesmen for them, which says to us, they've not learned to disengage from themselves. That's why I've called poets saints. But the really great writers create these characters um, and respect the freedom that they have and allow them the freedom to work out their own destiny. And if you look at Shakespeare, I mean, that's why in the tragedies people die. I mean, if he were a sentimental a writer, imagine what he'd do. He'd want to save them all. What a bad writer he would be. Ishmael is not Melville. He's a, he's a character that speaks of something in America, and our trust is, certainly the way that I'm seeing this, is he has so disengaged himself from this character that he allows him to, to, to work out his destiny on his own while he's revealing something about America. But, but in the book, when, when, when something Catholic comes up, it's usually indirect and veiled and faint, um, implicit, you know, he will, he, will, he will use the word popish, but very often that comes in a character. And if he's being true to that character, that may not represent Melville at all. That's why I said earlier that it's hard to find out where Melville is on this question. It's just a, it's not an easy question. It's, I, did, I did read his background, Melville, and there was nothing yeah. in it that indicated that... Yeah, I don't even want to go there. What I want to do is let the book speak for itself. It's a question that I want to come back to at the end, to ask this question. Where is he... What do we learn about ourselves? And I hope by that time we're deep enough in the book that we can, in some ways, put the Catholic question away. I want to, I'm interested in what he has to say about America for all of us, Catholic or Protestant. Um, um, okay. Um, what does Melville have to say about America? I want to very, very quickly go through a couple of things that have to do with America and Israel. One of the qualities that Melville makes clear that um, characterizes America is its um, heterogeneity, that it is a mix of people all over the world. You can't miss that. Um, the minute we see Ishmael stepping into New Bedford, he's come from um, Manhattan, comes into New Bedford, he's going to Nantucket. The first thing we see is this great variety of people, and let me let me just um, try to. I, I don't want to. I don't want to read all these quotes because I want to. I want to try to just give a sense because I want to. I want to look more closely at the at the the 
the direct indictment. I want to look at all the characters, Bildad and Peleg, Mrs. Hussein. <coughs> in New Bedford, um, remember, uh, this is really important, really important. In the opening chapter, he describes himself as being a part of this program of providence. Remember that passage that I read? Do you all remember? On page 34. <coughs> In the very opening chapter, he's raising the question, and this is so crucial, absolutely crucial, because he's going to be the only man to survive this wreck. One of the, 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 one of the more important works put out on Moby Dick in recent times is the Norton Anthology, which is thought to be one of the finest critical anthologies on every important work that it takes up. You've got all these modern writers who are writing about feminist issues, um, Melville's sexual orientation, um, Ahab's sexual orientation. I mean, it, it's everywhere. On, on, it's, I mean, it's just every, all over the map on these things. But the the editor of that collection describes the ending of uh, Moby Dick in terms of an inscrutable mystery. That it's meant to leave everybody puzzled. <laughs> which seems to me a little bit absurd. I think Ishmael's a Jonah figure and he's come back to tell us. Why would he survive that wreck? First of all, how, why did he, how did he survive? <laughs> right. And why did he write the book? If it's an inscrutable mystery and he's just passing on a puzzlement, why did he do it? I think there's more here for us. So in the very beginning, he raises this question of free will and destiny. He says, this is top of 34. Doubtless my going on this whaling voyage form a part of the grand program of Providence that was drawn up a long time ago. It came up as a sort of brief interlude. Now this is his comic. Remember, this is Ishmael early on. He's innocent, he's funny, but he's also looking back at the way he was then. It came in as a sort of brief interlude and solo between more extensive performances. I take it that this part of the bill must have run something like this. Grand contested election for the presidency of the United States. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? <laughs> God, the relevance of this is scary. In, in little print, in little font size, whaling voyage by one Ishmael. It doesn't, you know, nothing said about it, just this little headline. And then bloody battle in Afghanistan. Are things any different today? <laughs> I mean, that, that should be cause for hope. Where is there in our culture some little unnoticed, unrecognized guy who's, who's actually carrying out a plot for God that we're completely unaware of? You know, while somebody's going, we're going to win again, and Syria and Afghanistan are embroiled in wars, and God. Somebody, somebody in this class, write this book. Somebody, somebody write it. <laughs> If no individual is ready, let's do it collectively. This should be great. He's raising this question of free will. So what happens? Now just stop and think about it. When he comes to New Bedford, he makes it clear that he's got all these choices. Where to go, where to stay. Um, and he, he looks at all these things. The first thing he does is enter this black church. And he likens it to Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, it's all these black ashes flying over it. It's like... Um, um, Sodom and burning. Um, it's a question of what that says about uh, Melville and or Melville and his attitude about the Negro in 19th century America. Um, when he gets to New Bedford and he's there, 
he misses the ship. It's crucial. Yeah, he misses the ship. He can't go on. What happens when he misses it? He miss, he meets Queequeg. Would he have done it if he shipped? No. When you start putting all these things together, you have to ask, how do we understand free will and providence? And here we are again, back in Dante's world and Shakespeare's world and Homer. You are following me, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's got all these choices. He missed his ship. Um, and, and when he gets to the ship, he has to choose which of three ships. By the way, how does he, on what basis does he make his choice? Oh. Tracy, do you remember? All the names. The names for one. What? How does he do it? On what basis? I forgot. Hmm? I think it's the 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 way the ship looks. The the ornate look of the the historical kind of the ship. Remember, the sea were after a now extinct for our Indian nation. This is going to make this even more absurd. He and Queequeg have gotten, this is 16, page 104. Yeah, 16, page 104. In bed, we concocted our plans for the morrow, but to my surprise and no small concern, Queequeg now gave me to understand that he'd been diligently consulting Yojo. The name of his black little god and Yojo had told him two or three times over and strongly insisted upon it every way that instead of our going together among the whaling fleet in harbor and in concert selecting our craft, that instead of the two of them going because they're, remember they're married after he wakes up on the counter page, Cuico's got his arm over him and he says, we are forever married. And by the way, that's going to play out because on ship there's going to be this monkey rope chapter, which to me is when I have a story to tell you then that's, that's going to embarrass me, but I've got to tell you. Um, oh, it, was re- it was one of those moments, it was a revelation in my life. When I, re- I used to have a, f- a, a fear of flying, and I didn't realize at the time how much pride was behind it. I always said I'd rather drive. If, if I were going to, if, and I put it this way, I, I don't want to be a plane. What if God wants one of those people? <laughs> and I have to die for those people? Are you kidding me? I'd rather drive. And then I read, I read that monkey rope episode where Ishmael and, and um, Kuka are tied together. And Ishmael, or, yeah, Ishmael has this contemplation on the implications of being wed. Because it seemed, he, he calls it an interregnum of justice. An interruption of justice. How in the world, why in the world should his life depend on the life of another? And then he, he reconciles himself with it. And when I read that, I thought, how embarrassing. What if God wanted me on that plane and all those other people had to die for me? <laughs> and then I was really embarrassed. Anyway, the monkey rope chapter is a wonderful chapter. But here in the counterpane, we get a sort of foreshadowing. So they're married. They are wed. And they are tied together. And Queequeg makes it clear. He, he will risk his life for Ishmael. They just become friends, and he's all ready to give his life for him. And, and Ishmael's a Christian. Because he is ready to commit his life to this, this cannibal. Um, anyway, here. That instead of our going together among the whaling fleet in harbor and in concert selecting our craft, instead of this I say, Yojo earnestly enjoined that the selection of the ships should rest wholly with me 
inasmuch as Yoho proposed befriending us, and in order to do so had already pitched upon the vessel which if left to myself, I, Ishmael, should infallibly light on. How's that for free will? His choice was dictated by Yojo, this little statue. It's already been done. He will go pick it out when the outcome is already decided. So this whole question of free will, we watch Ishmael going through these opening chapters, making choices, missed a ship, meeting Queequeg, and having happening to choose the Pequod for this voyage. So right at the beginning, it, uh, Melville is, is setting up things to raise questions about providence and free will. And we're back in Winter's Tale, you know, in the, in the second part of Winter's Tale with this divine action going on. Are the gods present here? What's going on here in the opening? Um, the Nantucket, in chapter 14, I'm not going to read this, but chapter 14, um, pages 97 to 99, he described the men coming to Nantucket from all over the world. They are from everywhere. They've come from everywhere, Ethiopia, Africa, China. So that the image we have of America is that it's this strange place that's not like any other place in the world. It's composed from people everywhere. And they have to learn to get along. And here at the outset, what we're going to see is all these men joined. And they're all from, the, the men on board the ship represent all countries. They're, they're from everywhere. They commit themselves to this commercial enterprise, and you know it's going to happen. And that ship is going to go down. Um, Ahab's going to lead it to its destruction. So, um, he says in in this chapter 14, and thus have these naked Nantuckers, these sea hermits, issuing from their ant hill in the sea, overrun and conquered the watery world like so many Alexanders. They have conquered the sea. Remember what happened to the people who conquered the sea in the Homeric world? You know, remember the dangers of that. So, In chapter 16, the ship, pages 105 to 106, again, he describes the ship, and what we get is that all of the elements making up the ship come from different parts of the world. The hull, complexion darkened like a French grenadier's. The mast, as if cut from a coast of Japan. The mast stood as if the spines of the three old kings of Cologne. The decks, worn and wrinkled like pilgrim worship flagstone in Canterbury Cathedral, England. She was apparelled like any barbaric Ethiopian emperor, a noble craft, most melancholy. All noble things are touched with that. So, um, the, Melville's giving us this character of America, mid-19th century, that it's doing something no other nation is. Um, but we're at the beginning of what's going to turn out to be a, a tragic journey, except for Ishmael. If we look at Ahab as a tragic character, we have to see Ishmael as a comic. He will come back to tell us things. Um, let me give you one more thing about if we look at America and see the captains as captains of, of industry, they're like heads of CEOs, I mean, how, whatever, however you want to see them. Um, I think it's...
on page 110. The bottom, or in the middle. Now Bilded, like Pillig and indeed many other Nantucketers, was a Quaker, the island having been originally settled by that sect, and to this day its inhabitants in general retain in an uncommon measure the peculiarities of the Quaker, only variously and anomalously modified by things altogether alien and heterogeneous. For some of these same Quakers are the most sanguinary of all sailors and whale hunters. They are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. You know anything about the Quakers? You know that generally speaking, they're pacifists with respect to them. But here we see mid-19th century, a deeply religious sect turned away from the world becoming very worldly and taking their religious beliefs and turning them towards conquest. Um, they are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. Um, so that there are instances among them of men who named with scripture names a singularly common fashion on the island and in childlike naturally imbibing the stately, dramatic thee and thou of the Quaker idiom, still from the audacious, daring, and boundless adventure of their subsequent lives, strangely blend with these outgrown peculiarities a thousand bold dashes of character not unworthy a Scandinavian sea king or a po poetical pagan Roman. Going down or over on 111. Thereby chiefly, but with some help from accidental advantages, to learn a bold and nervous, lofty language. They have this high dignity. That man makes one in the whole nation's census, a mighty pageant creature formed for noble tragedies. Nor will it at all detract from him, dramatically regarded, if either by birth or other circumstances he have what seems a half-willful, overruling morbidness at the bottom of his nature. For all men tragically great are made so through a certain morbidness. Be sure of this, O young ambition, all mortal greatness is but a disease. But as yet we have not to do with such a one, but with quite another, and still a man, who if indeed peculiar, if only results again from another phase of the Quaker, modified by, um, by individual circumstances. Um, go down, he's describing Pelig and Bildad. Um, Still, for all this immutableness, was there some lack of common consistency about worthy Captain Bildad, though refusing from conscientious scruples to bear arms against land and invaders, yet himself had illimitably invaded the Atlantic and Pacific, and though a sworn foe to human bloodshed, yet he had in his straight-bodied coat spilled tons upon tons of Leviathan gore. How now, in the contemplative evening of his days, the pious Bildad reconciled these things in the reminiscence, I do not know, but it did not seem to concern him much, and very probably had long since come to the sage and sensible conclusion that a man's religion is one thing and this practical world quite another. How often do Christians compartmentalize their beliefs, go to church, but live their life as if it doesn't relate? And here we've got it intensified because Quakers by belief are pacifists, they don't believe in violence, and yet here in this business enterprise, they are attacking nature everywhere. They're described as conquerors of the sea, remember? Um, so, 
Melville is showing us an America that is um, extremely enterprising, all the more so, strangely, because of its religious convictions. That it brings intense convictions to practical matters um, of business. So that's the character and that's the ship. Um, let, me, let me take on Ishmael for a second. Um, a couple of reading questions here. We've talked about um, the um, the importance of this crisis in two different ways of reading. Remember. Um, the mid-19th century, you've got a biblical and scientific way of reading the world in conflict, um, radical conflict. If we narrow the focus down some from this large cultural problem and, and um, focus on, on uh, Ishmael and Ahab, what we see is two very different ways of reading. Both of these men are questers. This is a quest story. It's exactly like the Iliad and the Odyssey. There's a quest, a journey. Both of them are on a quest, but the nature of the quest for each of them is, is radically different. Um, if, if we look at both of them, it's, it becomes really clear that both of them want to understand the metaphysical underpinnings of everything in reality. They want to get to reality itself. Um, let me... I'm going to go, I want to jump ahead just for a minute because this is, um, you're going to come to this soon, but in the quarter deck chapter, um, this is book 36, book 36. Can I have that card? Book 36. This is one Ahab is going to, he's going to be like a modern political demagogue, like lots of our political leaders. I mean, he's going to take control of the ship, and he's going to um, get everybody to commit themselves to this vengeance quest. And you know. Um, All right, where's, sorry, give me a minute here. Which tools? Oh gosh, sorry, you guys. At one point, he's going to look at the whale in terms of a mask, understanding or asking the question whether there isn't some malevolent power working through it. He wants to take that mask and rip it off. 
to get to the ultimate reality behind it. And he believes that ultimate reality was um, his evil. On page 207. Um, Talking about Ahab. Right. Um, Captain Ahab, said Starbuck, who with stub and flask had thus far been eyeing his superior with increasing surprise, but at last seemed struck with a thought which somehow explained all the wonder. Captain Ahab, I have heard of Moby Dick, but it was not only Moby Dick that, was it not Moby Dick that took off your leg? He says, who told you that? Aye, aye, he shouted, aye, aye. It was that accursed white whale that raised me, made a poor pegging lubber of me for ever a day, and tossing both arms with measureless imprecations, he shouted out, aye, aye, and I'll chase him round Good Horn and round the Horn and round um, Norway Maelstrom and round Perdition's Flames before I give him up. And this is what ye have shipped for, men, to chase that white whale on both sides of land and over all sides of the earth. Nothing will stop us, no matter what's in the way. <clears throat> it's a little bit like somebody committing Christ when you go into orders. It's like a marriage. You, you commit yourself no matter what, whatever the circumstances. He's asking these men to, to completely give themselves to this quest. This is what you sh um, chase for. Aye, aye, shouted the harpooners and seamen, running closer to the excited old man. A sharp eye for the white whale, a sharp lance. God bless you. Um... I'm game, this is um, Starbuck, I'm game for his crooked jaw and for jaws of death too, Captain Ahab, if it fairly comes to the way of the business, follow. But I came here to hunt whales, not my commander's vengeance. How many barrels will thy vengeance yield thee, even if thou gettest it? Captain Ahab, it will not fetch thee much in our Nantucket market. Getting vengeance is going to pay these men. He didn't come there for the vengeance quest. He came there for money. How many whale, how many buckets of oil will give satisfaction, will pay off that debt. I don't know if you're seeing the connect. This takes us right back to the Iliad. This is the opening of the Iliad. Everybody gets booty. Ahab wants booty. Um, Ahab wants vengeance. All the other men are under an honor code that's understood strictly in terms of payment, of booty. So we're back in that world where we're looking to the nature of honor and the dignity of a human being, except in this case, it's not somebody who took somebody else. It's a whale that took Ahab's leg. This will become clear as we look at some other chapters, but I just wanted to read this just to give you a sense. We've entered into something different here that has its origins back on land. Um, so... Um, we've got two different ways of reading the world. Ahab is on a metaphysical quest. He doesn't just want to kill a whale. He wants to kill him with, because there's a sense in him that that whale represents some malevolent power working in the universe. Ishmael is on a quest. He's also a metaphysical reader. He wants to understand the natures of things everywhere. But we see the difference between the two. In a sense, we can say in one way, Ahab is like a modern scientist or a, a, a religious figure who wants to achieve a practical end. He wants to kill the whale. He wants to search it out and, 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 and act on it. 
Ishmael's concern for knowing is knowledge for its own sake. He's looking at things to understand their nature. So we've got two fundamentally different ways of reading. One of them has a practical end. It's to get control of this thing, even to destroy it. The other wants to know things for, the, for their own sake, to understand. So th this conflict in these different ways, if it gets narrowed down, takes on a very dramatic, concrete form when we get to Ishmael and, and um, Ahab and look at the way that they relate to the world. What kind of a reader is Ishmael? We've been talking about this all along. Think about some of the things that are presented to him, and I want to put it in the context of this. Ishmael is a Jonah figure. Um, what does he come to see at the end that he didn't see at the beginning? In the opening section on the land, because that's our focus here, what are some of the signs? Um, Ishmael is aware that when he comes to a point of bringing up the end of funeral lines, it's time to get the sea. He is morbid. He is preoccupied with death. When he, when he, now think about this, because there, there are signs of death all around him. All around him. The, the, the epic begins with this saying, when I start bringing up funeral lines. And he doesn't talk about wedding lines. He's not crashing weddings. He's bringing up funeral lines. So there's something morbid. Um, going on with him. We don't know what at this point, but something. There are hints of death in the Lazarus scene. When he comes to Spouters Inn, he sees Lazarus outside, and he's aware that Divas, the rich man, I'm assuming it's Peter Coffin here, um, will go to hell. Like in the Lazarus parable, Lazarus will end up in heaven. Um, so there's a death there. The, the Gomorrah church has a sense of a stark kind of death surrounding it. It's like Sodom and Gore. It's going to burn. You know, there are all these ashes flying outside. The name of the landlord of Spatter Inn is Peter Coffin. Um, when he gets to Mrs. Hussey's house, remember that the sign outside her house shows two black pots hanging from cross trees suggesting a gallows with two tombstones. He's going to stay there. Um, this is really important. Turn to 21, or let's see, 19, I think, first 19. Yeah, turn to 19 first. Um, page, I think it's 87. Let's, let me see. Chapter 19? Yeah. 130. Oops. Wow. Okay. That's right. That's right. Um, thanks, Karen. Yeah. Um, they're close to shipping out. They're prepared to go out. And um, Queequeg and, and um, Ishmael meet this strange figure. Page 130. Have you shipped in her? He um, repeated this on 130. You mean the ship Pequot, I suppose? Hi, Pequot, he says. Yes, I said, we just signed these articles. Anything down there about your souls? About what? Oh, perhaps you haven't gotten any, he said quickly. No matter, though. I know many chaps that haven't got any. The walking dead, here we are again. Good luck to them, and they were all the better for it. A soul's a sort of fifth wheel to a wagon. How many people in this culture are taking their souls seriously? This is Elijah, you all know, because he's going to be named in a minute. But right now, he's saying, have you signed? 
Anything down there about your souls? Exactly. This reminds me of the opening of Hamlet. Who's there? What did you sign for? Do you have, do you have any clue what you signed for? Quicka said, I let, this is top of 130. Let's go, this fellow's broken loose from somewhere. He's, <laughs> what's our typical attitude towards people like this? <laughs> Same asylum, yeah, give away, quick. <laughs> He's talking about something and somebody we don't know. What should be the natural response? I mean, if we have any head on us when we're faced with strange things, we should ask ourselves, is there something going on we don't understand? Stop, cried the stranger. You said true. You haven't seen the old man. That's what they don't know. They don't even know the captain. Who's old thunder, said I again, riveted with some insane earnestness in his manner. Captain Ahab. What, the captain of our ship? The Pequot? Aye. Among some of us old sailor chaps, he goes by that name. No, we haven't. He's sick, they say. Boy, is that a telling word. But he's getting better and will be all right again before long. Oh, yeah? All right again before long, laughed the stranger with solemnly derisive sort of laugh. Look ye, when Captain Ahab is all right, then this left arm of mine will be all right, not before. Clearly, his left arm is never going to heal. Um, turn over to 21. Now they're going aboard. This is getting ahead, but I just want to put the, with respect to this question of signs, how well does Ishmael read? God, I feel like I've been... I mean, I, yeah, I... I mean, I remember when we did the, I felt sort of strange because here we're reading this epic about men who are killing each other all the time, and I'm talking about reading. <laughs> but I hope you remember they did, and in, in, the, in the Odyssey, how well did the suitors read where there were signs all around them, mentor, mentes, Athena, signs, prophecies, were all, they all went by them. It seems like he realizes that, though. Page 136. Wait, let me get there. Well, go ahead. Go read it, Karen. Go ahead. Where are you? Um, page 136. Go ahead, read it. But when a man suspects any wrong, it sometimes happens that if he be already involved in the matter, he insensibly strives to cover up his suspicions even from himself. In much this way, it was with me. I said nothing, and I tried to think nothing. Yeah, and it's a question of even if he's faintly aware of it. it it doesn't keep him from not reading well because Haven't there's. Has he already signed up at this point, though? Mm -hmm. He already signed the paper. So does he have a way yeah. out of it? Huh? Does he have a way out? Well, he doesn't want a way out. I mean, he doesn't. He's not. He doesn't see. Retrospectively, he says this, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, he. Yeah. I mean, he's looking back. Yeah. Right. On page tw or chapter twenty-one. Now they're going aboard to set sail, and they meet Elijah. Going aboard? Hands off, will you? Said I. Looky here, said Quick, shaking himself. Go away. Ain't going aboard then? Yes, we are, said I. But what business is that is yours? Do you know, Mr. Elijah, what I consider you, that I consider you a little impertinent? No, no, no. I wasn't aware of that, said Elijah, slowly and wondering, wonderingly looking from me to Quick, with the most unaccountable glances. Elijah, said I. Will you oblige my friend and me by withdrawing? We are going to the Indian and Pacific Oceans and would prefer not to be detained. He, there's no thought of not going. They're committed. Um, ye be, be coming back, <laughs> coming back, well, this is coming back before breakfast? Um, no, not even close. He's cracked, Quig Quig, said I. Come on. Hello, cried stationary Elijah, hailing us when we'd removed a few paces. Never mind him, said I. Quig Quig, come on. 
But he stole up to us again and suddenly clapping his hand on my shoulder said, Did you see anything looking like men going towards that ship a while ago? Remember, he did see shadows in the, in the early morning hours. Struck by this plain matter-of-fact question, I answered saying, Yes, I thought I did see four or five men, but it was too dim to be sure. Very dim, very dim, said Elijah. Warning to you. Once more we quitted him, but once more he came softly after us, and touching my shoulder again said, See if you can find him. See if you see now. See if you can find him now, will you? Find who? Morning to you, morning to you. It seems to me like the opening line of um, Hamlet, who's there? Here we get at the, at the very outset of the journey, when they're committed, they're about to go into See if you can find them. See if you can find them. What is he to be looking for? Who's there? What doesn't he know? You know, that line back in 19, um, he's talking about something and somebody we don't know. There's a, a, a larger world outside of him he has no clue about. There's no way he can see, foresee what Ahab's going to do. So how good a reader is he? How attentive, on guard is he? I mean, to go back to what I said, there's something in Ishmael here at the beginning that's too innocent. He seems to be hiding. Um, and we'll see in a minute when I do the, I want to look at Peligan, that there's something about himself he's unaware of. And one of the questions that we have to ask is, what is he going to learn about himself on this journey? Do you, do you think his history of sailing conditioned him to not worry about those things? Rather straightforward, merchantman, everybody has a job, you get on board, you go to board. Um, he wasn't expecting something weird like Ahab. Right. He got blindsided by it. Right. I, I, no. think, I think knowing sailors and having been in the sea myself quite a bit, uh, you know, particularly with Irish sailors, sailors anyway, I mean, I mean, they wouldn't allow us whistling on the board the ship, for example. Uh, uh, Discipline was different. Right? They, they worried about it because it would bring up the wind. And uh, they, uh, they, they admonished anyone, anytime the captain or one of the mates if, if heard somebody whistling. That was a, it was a no-no. They wouldn't allow, <laughs> they weren't convinced. Uh, they fought Gulf for a uh, Gulf people wanted to go on board women. They wouldn't accept them. They said, the ship's going, will go down. It's a bad luck. That's a, the worst luck you can have. I mean, uh, you know, and, and people who are, you know, strange. I mean, I, I had a fellow who got on board who was a scientist. And I don't know if you remember the book, that, The Poseidon, that would, went upside down. Yeah. Well, t this guy is boarding in, in Manila. I mean, he was first I'm at the dock, and here's this guy walking up the, the gangway, and he's got this huge rock in his hand. I said, what the hell are you doing with the rock? You know, and I moved the fellow. And he says, I just finished the book, and he says, on the way over, and he says, if the boat goes upside down, I want to be able to break the porthole. <laughs> and the entire cruise, this man, every time he walked anywhere in any corridor, he would look what it would look like upside down. That was the way, and he constantly did this. I mean, it was just like, you know, trying to f figure what it would be like inverted. I mean... People who go to sea, I mean, <laughs> I have to say, you know, they're pretty cooky. I mean, superstitious. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very superstitious. Oh, to the, yeah. to, the, to yes. the end. Yes. I yeah. mean, they really are. Yeah. Carl, my, I, I, my response to your question is um, yes, for sure. 
um, but I, to go back to what you said a minute ago, you know, he's looking back in retrospect. There's two Aham, or I mean, two Ishmaels here. If we can't do this because we haven't finished it together, but clearly he's going to come back, and it seems to me that one of the things that he's doing is doing here because he's aware of things that he wasn't when he first shipped out is uh, the ironies that it surrounded him that he didn't see and I think one of the things I think one of the things we're meant to take away you have to see if you agree when we get to the end but one of the things he takes uh, that we take away from this if he's if he's Jonah come back to speak to us is precisely that that we're too unaware we take too much for granted we don't pay attention to things I mean, I, I just went through a list of things. All these signs, and I'm going to speak to another one now. All these signs speaking to him. Do we ever, do we ever go through life starting to put things together and ask, wow, when I put these together, there was something going on that I didn't see that we see now. Because when we're in the midst of it, we're so preoccupied with what we do that we don't see. So... Um, so that's my response. I think, I think it's really, it, it's Melville using Ishmael to show us how innocent about things he was that he should not have been. He should have been more careful. There's, there's more going on in this culture that he didn't see. And the whole journey is going to bring it all to the surface. And so we're going to see that there's a lot more going on in the world or he's going to see, and I, I mean, hopefully for us, we do too, that then he realized at the time. So, um, I've got to honor Karen tonight, so I have to watch our time here. How cautious um, does Melville have to be in how he jabs? Say again? How cautious does Melville have to be in how he jabs the establishment? Does he? Wow, what a good question. Wow. Why do you ask that? Well, for instance, what do you see? Shape. What do you see that's a danger to him that would make you ask that now? Um, really, just looking back to Shakespeare. Wait, wait. Does everybody understand the question? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Huh? Ask it again, Karen. Can you? Um, how? So when we talked about Shakespeare, um, you mentioned that he couldn't directly come out and criticize the establishment. The Tudor England, because yeah. It was um, dangerous to his health. His life, right? That's part of his health, right? So my question is in line with that for Melville: is could he jab directly at? Does he put? Is he putting himself at risk? At, in what he's doing in critiquing this world. But let me. I I, I, I want to get on here, so I don't. Do you see something going on here that that would put him in danger? That makes you ask that? No. No, just wondering. Yeah. The whaling industry. All of it. He's pretty critical about that. Yeah. Could you see anybody coming down on him legally or? Maybe not then. You know, the interesting thing. Yeah, when, when you look. Quakers who, um, you know, he's talking about how bloodthirsty they are. And it's, right. It's contrary to. Right. Um, right. Right. There's a little jab here, a little jab there, a little jab there. Yeah. To me, they weren't little jabs. <laughs> okay, big jabs. Um, it, it, the interesting thing, if it, I hope you guys will read the articles at the end. At, at the beginning of the article that I wrote, I suggested some of the things, some of the kinds of responses that were typical of people reading it, because most people looked at this as a fabulous story that was unbelievable. 
So I'm sure it would have been easier for lots of people just to blow it off, to dismiss it. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to believe that Quakers wouldn't have been offended. But the other thing is, how many Quakers would have read it? You know? And I think people reading it in the whaling industry probably wouldn't have given it much thought because they'd look at it as a fabulous story that it's, you know, it's. And, and they, lots of them would say it's very realistic in its depiction of what goes on on a whaling ship because people do this when they ship out. So, turn to the chapel, book seven. The opening, the opening of the chapter, in the second paragraph. Entering, I found a small scattered org congregation of sailors and sailors' wives and widows. A muffled silence reigned, only broken at times by the shrieks of the storm. Each silent worshiper seemed purposely sitting apart from the other, as if each silent grief were insular and incommunicable. The chaplain had not yet arrived, and there these silent islands of men and women sat steadfastly eyeing several marble tablets. Here's reading again. What are they reading? Grave markers. Gravestones. But the interesting thing is that each one of them has become isolated in his grief. Where are we? We're back in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Remember in the Odyssey, people could not come out of the grief from the past. They were arrested in it. The whole question, the, I mean, the the, act, the whole action of the Odyssey is directed at bringing people out of that past to bear the burden to come out of that past to bring people in. Remember, because all the marriages, people are living in the ordeal of the Trojan War, the losses, the grief, Helen's adultery, Nestor's loss of his son, Pisistrato, his son, losing his brother, and, you know, that they were grief-stricken. They were there. And I, it seems to me what Homer's showing us is the difficulty and how important it is to come out into the present and, and how that looks forward to Christ. That was one of the ways it seemed to me that it's anticipating Christ. Here we are in a similar situation. These men are in the chapels, paralyzed or arrested in their grief and isolated, absolutely alone. And he gives us examples of the tablets, the reading, what they're reading. This is amazing. It's like choosing to read novels that only have to do with grief. They're looking at these writings that, that are, they're fixed there, that keep them in the past. Shaking off the sleep from my ice glazed hat and jacket, I seated myself near the door and turning sideways, was surprised to see Quig Quig near me. Affected by the solemnity of the scene, there was a wondering gaze of incredulous curiosity in his countenance. He couldn't make sense of what was going on there. And you know from what's been said earlier, he's been... And actually, one of the things that's making the reason he's on this quest is he wants to find out more about Christianity. And the more he finds out about it, the less interested he is in it. The savage was the only person present who seemed to notice my entrance because he was the only one who could not read. Because reading kept them back there. Um... Going down, O ye whose dead lie buried beneath the green grass, who standing among flowers can say, Here, here lies my beloved. Ye know not the desolation that broods in bosoms like these. What bitter blanks in those black bordered marbles which cover no ashes. What despair in those immovable inscriptions. 
They're bad writings in some ways, even though they commemorate a death with deadly voids and unbidden infidelities in the lines that seem to gnaw upon all faith and refuse resurrection to the beings who have placelessly perished without a grave. There's that notion of resurrection again. In what, cons- in what census of living creatures the dead of mankind are included? Why is it that a universal proverb says of them that they tell no tales, though containing more secrets than the Goodwin Sands? How is it that to his name, who yesterday departed for the other world, we, prefi- we prefix so significant and infidel a word, and yet do not thus entitle him if he but embarks for the remotest indies of this living earth, why the life insurance companies pay death forfeitures upon immortals? In what eternal unstirring paralysis and deadly hopeless trance yet lies antique Adam who died 60 round centuries ago? How it is that we still refuse to be comforted for those who we nevertheless maintain are dwelling in unspeakable bliss? I mean, the ironies don't get greater than this. And here we are back in the ancient epics. I mean, it was one of the great themes, the way they point towards Christ, that Christ asks us to come out of that, to not get trapped in the past. The whole point of of his, one of the points is renewal, resurrection. That we grieve our dead, but we don't stay there. Our hope is to be with him, to live. And and yet we surround ourselves with... um, despair and while the living so strive to hush all the dead wherefore but the rumor of a knocking in a tomb will terrify a whole city all these things are not without their meanings that that I mean what he's suggesting here is that death is just dreadful it frightens us um, go down a little bit next paragraph he thinks that what they call my shadow here on earth is my true substance he thinks that in looking at things spiritual, we are too much like oysters observing the sun through the water. Here's reading again. We just too narrowly bring our focus in that larger things are going on around us. And thinking that thick water, the thinnest of air, he thinks my body is but the leaves of my better being. In fact, take my body who will. Take it, I say. It's not me. And therefore, three cheers for Nantucket and come a stove boat and stove my body when they will. For stave my soul, Jove himself cannot. Um, we get to the pulpit, and uh, Father Mapple um, um, make, takes his homily off the Jonah story. Go over to uh, chapter 9. Um, remember when Jonah comes aboard... Um, this is in the third or fourth paragraph that begins with this sin of disobedience but down a good ways Um, so disordered self-condemning is his look that that had there been policemen in those days Jonah on the mere question of something wrong had been arrested ere he touched the deck how plainly he's a fugitive no baggage, not a hat box, valise carpet bag, no friends accompanying at last, after much dodging search, he finds the Tarsus ship. Um, go, go down. Strong intuitions of the man assure the mariners he can be no innocent. In their gamesome but still serious way, one whispers to the other, Jack, he's robbed, a widow, or Joe, do you mark him? He's a bigamist. 
or Harry Ladd, I guess he's the adulterer. But, I mean, he's got all people reading into him, all this. The captain says, who's there, cries the captain, who's there? Oh, how that harmless question mangles Jonah. Now, I, I don't want to um, take too much time here. Um, go down the next par- paragraph. Now, Jonah's captain shipmates was one whose discernment detected in any but whose cupidity exposes it only in the penniless. In this world, shipmates sing that, that sin that pays its way can travel freely and without a passport, whereas virtue, if a pauper, is stopped at all frontiers. So Jonah's captain prepares to test the length of Jonah's purse ere he judge him. He charges him three times the usual sum, and you know that he takes it. You know what happens from this point. He's going to go aboard, a storm will come up, they draw lots, and Jonah finally has to admit that he's running from God, and he's thrown overboard, and the whale spits him up, and then he, he goes on to Nineveh. And um, Mapple, on the, go, go towards the end of the, the chapter, Shipmate, God has laid but one hand upon you, both his hands press upon me. I have read you by what murky light may be mine the lesson that Jonah teaches. What page is that? Do you guys have it? 80. 80. For I am a greater sinner than ye. And then he, um, what's the word, exhorts everybody um, to take greater care with their lives. He said, um, yet even then beyond the reach of any plummet, out of the belly of hell, when the whale grounded upon the ocean's utmost bones, even then God heard and engulfed repenting prophet when he cried. Then God spake unto the fish, and from the shuddering cold and blackness of the sea, the whale came breaching up towards the warm and pleasant sun and all the delight of air and earth, and vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Um, Go down. Jonah did the Almighty's bidding. And what was that, shipmates? To preach the truth to the face of falsehood. That was it. This shipmates, this is that other lesson. And woe to that pilot being God who slights it. Woe to him whom this world charms from gospel duty. This is the severest condemnation of everything in this whole period on land. Um, woe to him who pre... And, and what keeps everybody from preaching God? Cupidity. Loving the things of the world more than, other, more than God. Woe to him who seeks to please rather than to appall. Woe to him whose good name is more to him than goodness. Woe to him who in this world courts not dishonor. Woe to him who would not be true even though to be false were salvation. Yea, woe to him who as the great pilot Paul has it while preaching to others is himself a castaway. Going down a little bit more at the last paragraph. Um... Is not the main truck higher than the Kelson is low? Delight is to him as far upward and inward delight, who against the proud gods and commodores of this earth ever stands forth his own inexorable self. Is that Melville? I mean, to go back to your question, um, is he trying to stand against all the influences would keep him from this by writing this book? which is going to offend a lot of people. Delight is to him whose strong arms yet support him when the ship of this base, treacherous world has gone down beneath him. Delight is to him who gives no quarter to the truth and kills, burns, and destroys all sin 
though he pluck it out from under the robes of senators and judges. Delight, top gallant delight, is to him who acknowledges no law or Lord, but the Lord his God. And eternal delight and deliciousness will be his, who coming to lay down him down can say with his final breath, O Father, chiefly known to me by thy rod, mortal or immortal, here I die. I want to come back to this in a second, but I, I want to just um, do one more thing. There's that funny scene, the wheelbarrow scene, when um, it's really funny because we get a little bit of backstory on Quiquig when, when he signed up on a ship. And remember, he got the, the, the captain gave him the wheelbarrow to, to bring all his stuff on board, mm-hmm. and he puts the wheelbarrow on his shoulder because he does, doesn't know what to do with it, and everybody's laughing at him. Quique, or Ishmael laughs at him, and then Ishmael tells the story about that cap, or Quiquig tells the story about the captain that had visited the islands, and when the, the, the drinking bowl had come out, he thought it was to wash his hands, so he was, he was, it was his way of showing that all people misunderstand people from other cultures, so we're all equally foolish. We can't look down on each other. Ishmael keeps learning things from him. One last thing, um, I, I don't want to take any time here, but just on chapters, um, 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 in chapter 17, um, second paragraph, I say we good Presbyterian Christians should be charitable in these things and not fancy ourselves so vastly superior. He's, he's learned to love um, Queequeg. And you remember in an earlier chapter, for the first time when they're in bed, smoking together and smoking offended him. He says, not even smoking bothered me now. And he said, I began to feel my splintered heart soften. He feels a tenderness growing him towards this man. Um, When he comes to uh, Mrs. um, um, What's her name? Hussey. Hussey, yeah, thanks. Um, um, Ishmael leaves, and Ishmael locks the door so he can do his Ramadan, and Hussey tries to get in and, and knocks and doesn't hear anything and she immediately assumes that Quiquig has killed himself like, like who's it, Stiggs or... And, um, and she dreads the thought of having to pay for another door or to take care of it and so she, she, she goes nuts. Um, on, this is in the middle of 17. Um, Ishmael has to push through the door and there he finds Quiquig absolutely wrapped in prayer. And he tries to um, uh, mollify uh, Mrs. Hussey. She goes away, and when, when um, Ishmael goes to eat, he spends more time, and then they come back, and, and Quiquig is still at his Ramadan. And then finally, when he finishes, he goes over to Ishmael, puts his forehead against him, almost like a kiss, and then said his Ramadan is over. And after that they will ship. Now let me, let me stop, because we've got a, um, what's wrong with this Christian culture? If we look, and let me go back, do you, do you, what, what was your response to Father Mapple? To me, he, he, if we look at Peter Coffin, at Quiquig as a Presbyterian, or Ishmael as a Presbyterian when he's 
um, watch, you know, when he first meets Queequeg and he's horrified because he's a cannibal and then warms up to him and likes him. When they're going on the wharf and all the people are making fun of Queequeg and there's that one little bumpkin, Queequeg picks him up, remember he tosses him in the air and spanks him and the boy lands on his feet and he's screaming violence and all the people are ready to attack Queequeg and then suddenly the boom from the ship hits the boy and knocks him in the water and when nobody else does anything, Queequeg immediately jumps in, saves him and brings him out without a thought. And Ishmael's response is, has there ever been such unconsciousness, such innocence that he, he doesn't seem to be trapped by these conventions under which everybody else lives? That the, He's more Christian than any of the, the, other the, yeah. the So the, what, it, what Melville's showing us is that the more you become formed by conventions, the, the more you seem to turn away from your own nature and become less able to do things naturally. And Queequeg exhibits it in everything he does. So we saw the Presbyterian community around them scorning at him, making fun. And, and there's that passage, we didn't read it, but when um, Ishmael is watching him and says that um, what should somebody do when you're with somebody like Queequeg um, who's worshiping his idol? If you love him and God says to do you know, unto others as you would, he does it. And at that moment he says, I, I give up, I'm, I'm going to be a pagan. So he seems to forsake his Presbyterian faith. And then we have the episode with the chapel, um, the episode in the um, or, um, Maple Sermon and with his, Mrs. Hussey. At the moment when the door breaks down, she's in um, 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 scolding the little Negro boy, and then she comes showing more concern for the neatness of her home and the expense that she'll have to pay money than she is for Kweekwee's life. Well, it's, is, is Melville's issue with Christianity or with the church? structure under which Christianity is currently being practiced. I'm not sure. What's the difference? Well, yeah, there's, there's the, the Christianity that we just talked about with Kikwik, where the child is in the water, and he's the one that jumps in to get him. The, the, the nature of Christianity. And then there's the church that brings in all the structure and the rules and the regulations, and this is how you do this, and this is how you do that. And sometimes, I mean, look at, you know, look at in, in Christ's time with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, sometimes you lose sight of yep. what's important yep. in the structure. And so my question Or what it's is, for, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're following all the rules and regulations, and you kind of forget why you came. Yeah. And I, I guess my question is, 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 is it Melville indictment of Christianity or is it Melville's indictment of how the church is practicing it? Yeah. Do we the organize the organization yeah. organization yeah. of Christianity? I'm not even sure can we I'm not even sure that we can answer that at this Why? point right now right. because all we see are, are people living their lives. I mean Yeah but I think the bottom line is that we're all exposed to the church and we all basically get those roles. But the the execution of whatever we do with regard to Christianity is very individualistic. I mean, it is for Christ, it is for for Queequeg in this particular instance. I mean, to me at any rate. And I mean, you know, we all know what the rules are that, that the church has set, and they they themselves don't abide by many of them, obviously. 
Uh, I mean, we have we know from from history that that was the case. Uh, reality is, I think you know, I I think if he does have an objection, and I I think you're you know you, you brought up a, a point that struck me as well is the aspect of yeah it is the you know I, I think the the separatism of those two elements uh, are there. It's really what we are as individuals. So. The interesting thing is he he um, we we've got to wind up here. There's very little that he does um, explicitly in terms of a church. It's all implied. It's, um, what, what we're seeing are people living out of faith, and there seems to be something wrong with the faith as they're living it. So we get different instances of it. Let me, I just, I want to spend a minute because we're going to have to leave. What was your response to Father Mapple's sermon, or, or him as a man? Because there's lots of controversy. I mean, there's there, there are different ways of looking at him, and people people look at him in different ways. Some people see him filled with hate. So many of the descriptions that, that Ishmael gives of him are he speaks with he says again and again that he speaks with this deep humility that he's trying to serve God, and yet in that passage where he says burn, destroy. You know, uh, and he talks about the delight in doing this, even though everybody opposes you. So, that's the only explicit um, treatment that Ishmael gives us of the church, in any sense, because we go into a chapel and listen to a minister give a sermon. What's your response to Maple? I mean, good, bad, huh? You like him? Why? Wait, wait. Why? Why, Mark? He just told Two. it as it is. Yeah. yeah, he believes in it. He believes yeah. in Christianity. Yeah. Okay. That's him. Yeah, that's his belief. And he could just explain by it so they could understand it. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. by that sermon, too, and when he ends up, that's the way they should be. Listen yeah. to God. When God's sending you to do something, yes, do, do it. it. <laughs> Anybody else? Anybody have problems with him? No? There's the land. Melville has shown us lots about America. It's, it's um, um, heterogeneous character, the fact that it brings people together from all over the world, um, what seems to be this failure in the way people are living out their faith. Um, there seem to be hypocrisies everywhere. Um, Quig Quig highlights them because he seems so naturally good when everybody else seems arrested or paralyzed, they're, they're not either the either the theology has failed in the church. I mean, he, he doesn't get us there, or they're failing in the way they live out their beliefs. And um, Ishmael and Quiquig are, in a sense, highlighting them by the contrast. They're going around; people are making fun of them. Ishmael, Ishmael begins with a splintered heart, and he has that moment when the two of them are in bed reading, and, and Quico trying, or Ishmael's trying to explain, when he says, I felt my, my splintered heart melt. And he, he, he found himself beginning to feel an affection for this cannibal, which, which almost gave him a heart attack when he first jumped in bed with him. So this is, this is the land, this is the land that, that Ishmael has set out, that Melville has set out, now we're going to go out to sea, and what we're going to experience there are all these metaphysical mysteries that seem to underline um, this cultural problem that he, he introduces us to at the beginning of the book. So this is where the adventure really begins.
So I think we quite brought Ismail out of the cave. He what? I think we brought him out of the cave. Yeah. Or is bringing him out of the cave. Yeah. Well, looking back, I think. Yeah. You know, yes. Okay. See you guys. Have a good week. Keep reading. Oh, sorry. Did you? You mentioned at the beginning of our session that you wanted to try to capture certain chapters. Rather have a target, rather than 20, I'm just going, but it's, it's rough. But I, I'm going to try and do 20 a week. Because they're, they're small. If we don't make it. <laughs> what? No more wine for you.